Well, good morning again. This time, would you join me in opening up our Bible to Mark 15? If you don't have a Bible, you can feel free. You're encouraged to use a blue pew Bible in front of you. Mark 15 is on page 852. Um, and we want to remind you from time to time, if you do not own a Bible or you would like a Bible, take that home with you. Uh, you won't get tased on the way out or anything. Um, it's yours to have. We love when people take our Bibles and then replenish, so feel free uh, to take it home with you. All right, by a raise of hands, um, raise your hand if you have, uh, at any point in your life, read the book or seen the movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Raise them up. Probably 80, 85 percent in here. So for those who are not aware, it is, that is probably the most uh, well-known book within a series of books by C.S. Lewis. Um, it's called the Narnia series. There's seven books total. Um, they are kind of a fantasy adventure theme. They're, they're, I'd say the books are probably middle school reading level. I think I first, first read it maybe in fifth grade. I think middle school reading level. But it's one of the few series in literature uh, that is enjoyable to read at any age. I, I enjoy the Narnia series now more than I did when I was in middle school. And even though it's like fantasy adventure, we can't hide behind that because, I mean, just look, every summer it's the Marvel movies coming out over and over again. The only movies that are making money are superheroes, okay? So you can do fantasy literature. And um, as an adult reading them, it's not so much about the storyline that's intriguing. The, the best part is C.S. Lewis, and his writing style, it's so um, compelling, it's so unique. He has these kind of deep, sharp one-liners that can be kind of sarcastic. Um, but best of all, he masterfully, he was a believer, uh, and from a Christian perspective, he weaves in these biblical principles within the storyline and through his characters that reveal so much about the human heart, uh, the problems with the world, um, our need for a Savior. And uh, so if just there's your commercial to start out. If you haven't read them, uh, you should put them on your next Christmas birthday list. But uh, the Christ-like fictional character throughout this whole series is a lion. And it's a lion named Aslan. And we're first introduced to Aslan at the end of the first book in the series. The book was called The Magician's Nephew. And the kind of the bad guy in this story, the antagonist, uh, is a man named Uncle Andrew. Okay, hang with me. Um, Aslan begins to sing Narnia into existence. Um, he speaks this land into existence. And Uncle Andrew is there, and he's looking on. And then we read this. Listen closely from this excerpt of The Magician's Nephew. When the great moment came and the beast spoke, he missed the whole point. For a rather interesting reason, when the lion had first begun singing long ago when it was still quite dark, he had disliked the song very much. It made him think and feel things he did not want to think and feel. Then when the sun rose and he saw that the singer was a lion, he tried his hardest to make believe that it wasn't singing and never had been singing, only roaring as any lion might in a zoo. And the longer and more beautiful the lion sang, the harder Uncle Andrew tried to make himself believe that he could hear nothing but roaring. Listen, now the trouble about trying to make yourself stupider than you really are is that you very often succeed. He soon did hear nothing but roaring in Aslan's song, and when at last the lion spoke and said, Narnia, awake, he didn't hear any words. He heard only a snarl. 
You see, it's possible to look at something and yet not see. It's possible to listen to something and yet not hear. And as we plow along in our series in the Gospel of Mark, we have come very close to the end, to the start of chapter 15. And we're going to see this happen in real life, where men and women will look at Jesus, but they can't see. And they're going to listen to Jesus, but they can't hear. And to some, Jesus' words are a beautiful song, and to others, it's nothing but a beastly roar, and in the end, they they miss the whole point. Or as the Apostle Paul says in his own words in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Let's get going in our passage. Mark 15, we're going to start with verses 1 through 5. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. We're going to see three ways, three groups of people who look at Jesus but can't see him, who spoke to Jesus but can't hear him. And, and just a fair warning, if, if this passage, my guess, as we walk through it, it's going to make you simultaneously furious and grateful. It's a strange mix of emotions this morning. But we're going to see the patience of Jesus, his fierce determination to be faithful, and the grace that we all need to see him for who he really is. So first, we have the governor. The governor is the man named Pontius Pilate. And so um, last week, we saw that the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin's the governing body of Jews, they condemned Jesus to death. That's where we saw at the end of our passage last week. Um, But capital punishment, putting somebody to death, is the one ruling they needed approval from the Roman authorities to carry out. So reminder, the Roman Empire is in control of the Middle East at this point in history. It's the largest empire in the ancient world. And and for the most part, the Romans gave these kind of native Jewish people autonomous rule. They could handle their own cases, solve their own problems. There was some sense of religious freedom as long as it didn't get too out of control. They had civil freedom and can kind of do their own court system. Um, But they could not order someone to be put to death without the green light from the governor. So at the first break of day, they bring Jesus before a man named Pontius Pilate. He's the governor over the region at this time. This is in line with historical sources, right? A reminder, the Bible is not fantasy literature. It's rooted in history. Uh, Pontius Pilate, a historical governor, he ruled over this region for 10 years. Only 10 years, 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., And so how things worked is that you had the emperor, you had Caesar, right, in the capital city of Rome. And that emperor would appoint governors over the various regions of the empire. So Pilate is the governor of Judea and Samaria, which is where the capital city of Jerusalem is. It's where the temple is. It's where the majority of the Jewish people live. And governors could be appointed and removed at any time. Okay, this is not a democracy. He's not getting voted in and voted out. It was Caesar puts you in, Caesar can take you out at any moment. So a governor had to stay in the good graces of Rome 
in order to uh, stay in power. And so the way to stay in the good graces of Rome was to minimize conflict in their region. Okay, you know what Rome loved? Rome loved peace, but peace through submission, right? Like that they wanted just nothing to go on. They wanted everyone to play nice. They wanted to expand their power when they can, and they hated conflicts. So Pilate's job, above all else, is to ensure that nothing gets out of order in Judea and Samaria. No revolutions start. uh, Nothing gets kind of put on their radar that, man, Pilate's lost control. So that's a tough job because the Jews and Samarians, those two regions, they hate each other, first of all. And neither of them really loved being under the watchful eye of Rome. So he was consumed with kind of squashing threats wherever he found uh, a threat and, and to keep this peaceful reign or else he's out. So this is a loose illustration, uh, but it's kind of like when Rochelle leaves me home with the kids. <laughs> All right, she's going to go run some errands. Yesterday she got her like one massage a year. She, she deserves more, but she got it yesterday. And it's my job when she leaves to keep the peace. All right, so when she calls to check in, when she walks in the door, here's my goal. I want the kids wearing clothes, like at least for the most part. I want them not jumping full speed off the couch into a pillow fort while holding a fistful of M&Ms in their hand, okay? That has happened more than once. Because if that happens and Rochelle walks in and it's all chaos all the time, that's not going to end well for them. It's not going to end well for me. Like, who's the adult in this place? My job is to keep the peace. And it's hard. And I'm sure it was hard for Pilate. Different reasons. Bigger consequences. And so if you read history about Pilate, he was kind of a harsh ruler, and he had a reputation of being pretty brutal because he he didn't really like the Jews, and he had to kind of keep them contained. And so he would come down to Jerusalem. It's not where he was all the time. He would just come down during Passover week when this city swelled because now there's a big threat when there's a lot of people in one place that things could get out of hand. So the Jews bring Jesus to him to get this green light on an execution. And he turns to Jesus. You notice what he asked? It's a phrase that comes up again and again in this passage. He says, so are you the king of the Jews? It's a notable question because this is the way the chief priests framed his crime. If they went to Pilate and said, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah, you know what Pilate would say? Who cares? I'm not doing your silly religion. He doesn't mean anything to me. Like, like Pilate would not sign off on anything like that because, okay, he's the Messiah, big deal. But... That's not how they presented him to Pilate. Listen to what Luke's account says of what they said to Pilate. This is verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 2 in Luke. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is a Christ, a king. See, they, they lied. They just downright lied in order to entice Pilate to find him guilty because a Messiah, who cares? It's your silly religion. A king, now that's a big deal. A king would be a threat to Rome. You know why? There can never be two kings. And if he is advising people to pay to not pay tribute to Caesar, well, that's a problem. That's not keeping the peace. And so Pilate hears this and hence his question to Jesus: Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus um, in answer, in short, his answer is yes and no. 
He doesn't explicitly affirm this because, um, yes, he's a king, but he's not the type of king the chief priests are accusing him of. Ironically, he is far more of a king than they would ever realize. And in John's gospel, he hints at this because Mark just gives us a short version. He always does. But John uh, gives us a little bit longer of what Jesus says back to Pilate. And part of what he says back to Pilate is this, my kingdom is not of this world. And so Pilate is understandably kind of confused now, right? Now he's got a decision to make. The accusations keep coming. And so he goes again, I mean, are you going to defend yourself against this? It's a lot of serious things being thrown your way. And then Jesus cuts it off, stops talking. And it's for the second week in a row we see strength in silence, this fulfillment of Isaiah 53. And now Pilate sees him, and he's just not talking. And Mark records, Pilate was amazed. He couldn't put his finger on it. Like, he's almost admiring Jesus and recognizing his innocence, but when push comes to shove, he doesn't have the courage to act on that impulse. Uh, We know from other gospel accounts that he actually tried to send him to another governor. He's like, you're from Galilee, bro, so you're going up north, and you're going to that governor, and that governor, Herod, goes, no, I'm sending him back because this is all happening in Jerusalem. So now Pilate's like, dang it, now it's back on my plate again. And here's the thing, like, here's the thing to notice. Pilate is compelled by Jesus because he kind of knows he's innocent. But he wants to keep the peace. He wants to stay in the good graces of Caesar. Pilate kind of cares just about himself more than anything else. And so at this point, it seems that maybe just giving the chief priests what they want might be the most peaceful option. But don't miss it. Don't miss how he's being drawn to Jesus, but ultimately does not like what believing Jesus would mean for his life. Do you catch that? There's something drawn to him about this, but if I go forward with that, this might not end well for me. This might bring some conflict in my life. And so he hardens his heart. He looks at Jesus, but doesn't see him. He listens to Jesus, but he doesn't hear him. Just like Uncle Andrew in Lewis's book. And I couldn't help but think how common and tragic this response to Jesus still is today. Where someone hears the gospel, hears the call to to respond by repenting of sin, of of trusting in him. And, And they're compelled by the message to some degree. Because who is not compelled by restoration? Like, everybody knows inside themselves they're a little broken, right? Like, we all know something's a little messed up and we need to make it right. But how do you make it right? That's the question where we disagree on. So we love the notion of restoration, the thought of a free gift and forgiveness of sin for their past, for things that they are just so ashamed of, and they feel the weight of guilt week after week. And there's a desire to be saved, to be made whole. But what holds them back is the fear of what it might mean for their lives. You see, certain things would have to change. When a new king is put in place, things change, don't they? Relationships change. The way you approach your job changes. The, the hobbies and the social life that you have on weekends and weeknights might have to change. Oftentimes, it's a fear of what you're going to have to say to those close to you. You're doing what now? 
You're following who? You're going there? Here's one that's very common and I don't take lightly. There's a fear of what do I say to my parents? Because they raised me a different way and I love my parents. This is a slap in the face to them. It's a fear. I'm compelled to him, but I don't have the courage to really go all in because of conflict it could bring. And ultimately and tragically many times they decide, can't do it. And maybe that would describe you this morning where you have stiff-armed Jesus. You've kept him at an arm's length where, where you see, where you look at him, but you, you don't see. You, you listen, but you don't hear. And, and like Pilate, you're, you're going to get to a place where you just have to wash your hands of it and move on. And, and the thing about life in 2019 is that we can keep ourselves so distracted and so entertained that we can stuff those feelings, stuff those feelings, and eventually just think about something else. Those initial feelings to Jesus, I can stuff that, I can put my mind elsewhere, I can watch something else, listen to something else, go somewhere else, out of sight, out of mind. I just want you to hear that the only way we, anybody, me, anybody in this room who claims to be a believer, the only way we are able to look at Jesus and see him for who he is, is by the grace of God. That's what Paul means when he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be opened because you cannot open them by yourself. That Jesus is not just a man, he's the Christ, the only way back to the Father. And seeing that is purely by God's grace. So no one can stand up and be like, I found it. I figured it out. The game of life. No one can boast when it's purely by God's grace. The grace of our eyes to see this man who doesn't use his power to keep people out, but let people in. To not create walls, but to build bridges to let people into the grace of God, no matter their story, no matter their background, their race, their socioeconomic status. And this is what amazed Pilate when he looked at him. He goes, this guy's just so different. People don't use power in that way. They use power to wall people off. This guy's using his power to let people in. That's different. He came to give, not to take. He came to forgive, not to condemn. So our plea before you week in and week out at Grace Church is that if you're, in, if you're not a believer, that just objective evidence of you being here this morning, for whatever reason you're here, is that God is after you, and God is pursuing you, and he does ask that you surrender control of your life or whatever control you might think you have and put your faith in him. And it's not just going to be easy all the time. It might be hard. It might lead to conflict as things start to change, but it will be so worth it. Ask a brother or sister that's brought you or sitting around you of what's, what's changed in their life, and there's going to be some painful stories in there, but it's always worth it. It will restore your soul. It's the promise to make you whole once again and to glorify the God who created you in all your wholeness. Let's keep going. The second group that looks but can't see it, Verses 6 through 15. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered to them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. 
But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. We saw the governor. Now second, we see the crowd. Pilate had one last trick up his sleeve, one last attempt to make this a win-win situation because every year during the Passover, Pilate would release one Jewish prisoner back to his people. Why? Again, he wants to keep the peace. He wants to be in somewhat in their good graces, so he stays in Rome's good graces, so it's not to free somebody to make them look good, it's to make him look good. Maintain some stability. And so Pilate thinks this could be the way out. When the crowd starts to call for a prisoner like they always do, how about Jesus? In fact, they call him king of the Jews. Certainly they would want their king returned. This could be the perfect solution. Pilate could stick it to the chief priests because he knows they're just jealous and they're just trying to kill this guy who's innocent while also appeasing the bigger crowd so no real riot starts. This could be his win-win. But we see his struggle nonetheless. He's trying to decide really hard, is killing Jesus going to disrupt the peace or maintain it? Verse 11 kind of squashes his theory, proves to be the decisive point. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas instead. Chief priests were prepared. They knew how to sway the crowd in their favor. I'm really intrigued as to how they did it. It's how my mind works. What did they do to convince him? Did they bribe him? Did they threaten them? A little bit of both? But somehow they got the crowd going to call for Barabbas instead. Barabbas was a revolutionary. He was a freedom fighter who was found guilty of murder. Not just a prisoner, the worst kind of prisoner. He killed a Roman official in some type of insurrection in the past. But what's fascinating is that if you read closely and you read again, Pilate never offers up Barabbas initially. The chief priests just get the crowd to call for him. And Pilate tries to expose how crazy this seems. Why would you want to condemn Jesus? What has he done wrong? But now the crowd is just stirred up in a frenzy. Crucify him. And all the while, they don't even realize what's happening before their eyes. Do you see it? Jesus will be Barabbas' substitute. The innocent will be condemned and the guilty will go free. What a picture of the scandalous nature of the gospel. Jesus paying for the sins of another, and the sinner goes free. This is what I mean when I said the passage is so infuriating, and yet so glorious. It's such a strange mix as you read it and really dive into it, because our first inclination is to be angry over what's happening here. That's injustice, isn't it? I mean, the cowardice of Pilate, the deceit of the chief priests, the irrational behavior of the crowd, it's just all terrible. We don't like it when someone who is, cleared, who is clearly guilty, everybody knows it, and yet they get exonerated from any kind of punishment. We hate it when we see it in a big name in the news. We hate it when it's just a coworker or a fellow student who clearly did something wrong but didn't get in any trouble. 
And you're just sitting there being like, what the heck? That's not justice. What's up with that? And yet this turns when we realize that this just gave us a picture of the gospel. Because we're in this story, except we're not Jesus. We're Barabbas. To believe in Jesus as your Savior is to surrender to the reality that we are guilty of rebelling against him. We are revolutionaries against the Most High God, and because of Jesus dying in our place, we are set free. That's what Joey's proclaiming in the tank, right? He's not being like, hey, I figured it out. Stepped into Grace Church. No, that stepping into Grace Church was the means through which God unveiled Joey to Joey. Kind of like he unveiled Aaron to Aaron. And it was terrible, and I was guilty, and I was a sinner. At the same time, he says, and I'll pay for that. That is what makes the gospel so glorious. Not that we are behaving a certain way, but because God has stepped in our place. And because of that, we begin to begin a new path of behaving another way. The Apostle Paul, I think, worded it best. He was writing a letter to a man named Timothy. Timothy was a guy who was kind of mentoring in the faith. I'll have it on the screen. This is 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 15. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Listen, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. It's a strange mix of emotions, this passage. The crowd just unknowingly, out of their own sinful hardened hearts, provided a picture of redemption for us. And from their perspective, they didn't care an innocent man would die, because after all, the heart wants what it wants. It's a famous quote. It was first put forward by a poet named Emily Dickinson. Although based on your generation, you probably associate it with somebody else. Maybe Woody Allen said it to justify an affair. Or more recently, Selena Gomez. I know that's on your top 10 songs you're listening to week in, week out. You used it for a 2014 title, a billboard topping song, The Heart Wants What It Wants. Is there any phrase that captures the pulse of our culture right now than that? We just, we can't explain it sometimes. It's elusive. Sometimes it wants that. We got to go do that. And then other times it wants that. And then it begins to be the justification. We just do whatever we want to do because after all, the heart wants what it wants. However, the word of God tells us that in this fallen world, following your heart is the problem, not the solution. And it's not until the grace of our Lord overflows for us with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus that, we're in call, that we are then encouraged to start following our hearts. And so the crowd looked, but they could not see the great exchange taking place. They listened, but they could not hear the sentencing on a man who came to take the place of sinners. And now third, let's finish the passage. Verses 16 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. 
And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on him and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. All of this attention now brings excessive force. A battalion in the Roman army was 600 soldiers. And they all get called in. I imagine by Pilate. Why? Again, because of the crowds. He's still maybe not sure, was this the right decision? And how uneasy it all might be? He wanted to make a statement. You bring in the whole battalion and no riot takes place. And after he sentenced him to death... It's always followed by a flogging before the actual crucifixion. Um, Mark is very brief in his description of the flogging. He gives you just two verses. But we know from the other gospel accounts and then just from Roman history that this was as brutal of a beating as you could imagine. You know, we often emphasize the spiritual significance of Jesus' suffering and his death as well we should, but we can often overlook just how violent his physical suffering was. Roman history tells us that over half of the people condemned to death would die during the flogging. They would never even make it to the cross. So uh, Jesus, in all likelihood, would be tied to a post and then beaten with a weapon called the flagellum. It's a whip with several cords coming out from it that would have pieces of bone or lead attached to each cord that would tear into the flesh. There was no maximum number of strokes allowed. And since the whole battalion was there, my guess is more than a few guys got a crack at it. And this criminal would be beaten until they would be essentially unrecognizable. But before they began, they decided they wanted in on some of the fun with Jesus, and they mock him. They put a purple cloak on his shoulders and they twist together a crown of thorns and they, and they mercilessly mock him. Hail, king of the Jews, and then go take another swing. And unknowingly, they confess on their lips that, oh, he's a king. Far more of a king than they would ever realize. So the soldiers looked at the blood but could not see it as the blood being shed to make others clean. And they listened to the screams but could not hear them as the screams of the Lion of Judah that will bring new life. I found this passage really difficult this time around. I, I couldn't handle what I was feeling going through it. Like, I'm just not really sure how to respond, and yet that kind of paints a picture of the gospel. Like, it's, it's, it, you just don't know what to do with it. It, it. it says the bad news is really bad. It's infuriating. It's, it confronts you, and yet the good news is so good and so gracious. But it is kind of unfair that an innocent man had to endure all this. It's where the cross sees the events of justice and love collide, where, where God's justice against sin and the love for sinners crash together. And it's revealed to us. Why is this revealed to us? Why are we reading this? What are we supposed to do with this? Primarily, it's to see Jesus in all his glory, patient in affliction, enduring the pain so that we would believe in him and entrust our life to him. 
And yet there's another question I have. That, that, that it was kind of the first time I really thought about this and asked this while studying this passage. Why did it have to be so brutal? Like, why did Jesus have to suffer so brutally? Like, okay, if you even get to the place where I understand he had to die for the sake of sinners and in their place, couldn't there be a less brutal way to die? Why such suffering leading up to his death? And I don't think it's just to make you feel guilty about yourself. As if Jesus is just kind of up in heaven and be like, see what I had to go through for you? Like, I don't think it's just for you to heap shame upon yourself. Um, but it, in fact, it's to show us a model of great love. Think about it this way. Think about um, some of you might have a story where you were raised by a single mother or a single father. or Maybe some of you are a single mom or a single dad. And, and the story often goes, you're going to have to work your tail off. Sometimes two or three jobs in order to provide a better life for your child. And, and you hear um, people talk all the time just about their mom and their dad. They just worked to like unbelievable amount because they wanted to provide their kids something better. And why does a mom or dad do that? Not so someday they can make their kid feel guilty. Be like, look what I'd do because you came. But it's out of their great love for them. That I will do anything to create a pathway for my child. And then it also provides an example of what true sacrificial love looks like. And likewise, Jesus' suffering is there to provide a model for the way we ought to live. Like Jesus, once we believe in him, we are called to stand against injustice in order to bring forth biblical justice. To live our lives by looking out for others, not just staring at ourselves, seeing those in need, meeting those needs, loving them, working them for their good. You say, Pastor, where are you getting that? Listen to what the connection Peter makes. We'll have it on the screen. For, this, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Look, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Did you see it? By his wounds you've been healed, you've been saved, you're dead to sin, you're alive to righteousness, and he suffered to leave you an example. So we might follow in his steps, which is what? The steps of loving God and loving others the way he's created us to do. To put ourselves before others, to be culture shapers, to love your neighbor well, especially those who consider you their enemy, to fight systems of injustice that marginalize people, and this is done most effectively when the church leads the way. In small ways that maybe many people will never even see, just to do what's right. To have the courage to do what's right, to step into hard spaces and step into situations. Why? Because we care. And how? Because by the power of the Spirit, we can. It's always costly to help others in some way. It's going to cost you financially. It's going to cost your time. It's going to cost your energy your status, maybe your reputation, and there's always a cost to looking to the interests of others. And hear me, it's always worth it. God will always be faithful to sustain us through moments of suffering that come as a result of following in his steps. So the cross, it's folly to most people. Man, we're in 2019. You're still believing this? That's cute. This little fairy tale. And we go, 
Yes and amen we are. And not only for personal salvation, but because now the power inside of us, we have the light of salvation that we can strive ahead and make a difference in this world and play a part in its cosmic, global restoration plan because by God's grace, we can. Don't lose heart. Walk in his steps. Stay faithful. Let's pray.